Hello, and welcome to The Stakes, the show where we collectively try to untangle the colossal clusterfuck that is politics, news, and social justice in the year 2016. I'm Holly Anderson, Director of Politics and News for MTV News. Coming up on the show today, Jamil Smith talks to Charlene Carruthers of Black Youth Project 100. We splash around in the shallow end of the crazy California Senate race, and Marcus Ellsworth makes you a limited time offer on an unforgettable Gulf Coast vacation. But first, MTV Deputy Founders Editor Julie Zeilinger talks to Andy Zeisler about her new book, We Were Feminists Once. Let's get to it. Feminism has gone mainstream. Once a radical political movement, feminism has been rebranded and co-opted by marketers to sell us things. Perfume, music, dating apps, you name it. But what does this mean for the movement? Does it weaken the cause or strengthen it? Julie Zeilinger talks to Andy Zeisler about her new book, We Were Feminists Once, to try to unpack this. As a longtime reader and fan of Bitch Magazine, the feminist magazine you co-founded, I was so excited to read your new book, We Were Feminists Once, and your take on the rapid fire evolution of feminism as a popular trend. Um, And in fact, I was thinking about it, it really doesn't feel like it was that long ago that the word feminism was very much stigmatized. And you note in the book that feminism was considered a dirty word when bitch started in the mid 1990s. And that was just a few years ago. And now here we are. And feminism is suddenly cool. I mean, you more specifically argue that feminism has shifted from a political movement altogether to this sort of cool branded identity. Um, And I just love to dig into that and and start at the beginning. Can you describe how and why you've seen the shift happen? I don't know that I can explain why, (laughs) but feminism has become much more ambient over the past decade or so. And when I say ambient feminism, I think I'm thinking of stuff like, you know, the Steubenville, Ohio high school rape Mm -hmm. case. Uh, where we heard um, terms like victim-blaming and slut-shaming that really did come out of feminist discourse in many ways, um, brought into contact with news media and popular culture. So I think part of it was this very organic shift of feminist concepts and feminist perspectives into mainstream culture. By the time Beyonce, for instance, performed at the Video Music Awards in 2014, you know, she had, she had written for the Shriver Report about gender equality. Other celebrities were talking about these things in the context of roles they took or, you know, characterizations of, of women in, uh, in pop culture in general. So I think um, there was very much a, a groundswell of this sort of thinking and uh, this discourse happening. I mean, I, like, I remember how marginalized these, these feminist blogs were. Um, and it was sort of this, this uprising in the mid-2000s and early 2000s uh, where places like feministing sort of went from these marginal blogs to this mainstream news media. And I even remember part of that, um, part of that shift was feminist bloggers in those spaces calling for celebrities and pop culture influencers and the mainstream media to embrace the movement and destigmatize it. Um, and now here we are. They sort of have. But feminism's work is still obviously not done. So I'm just wondering if you could explore that disconnect a little bit. Yeah, I mean, and and that's always, or almost always been the case. I mean, there has always um, been this need for kind of celebrity mouthpieces to help legitimize social movements, and certainly feminism in particular. 
Um, you know, if you look at Ms. Magazine uh, in the early 1970s when the issue at hand was the Equal Rights Amendment, um, one of the big tactics was to get people with sort of big public megaphones on board with this very tangible piece of legislation that stood to change a lot of women's lives. And the idea was that, you know, um, feminism had such bad optics that if we could get people who uh, the public saw as not needing to care about feminism, Mm -hmm. to care about feminism, then it would suddenly seem legitimate. But yeah, I agree that it's sort of a, it's a little bit of a be careful what you wish for situation in terms of feminism, because while it's really great to get people out on red carpets, there's also a real danger of making feminism in that way into kind of an empty trend. Mm-hmm. I think when when we when we have these conversations, and I think I, I I hope I make this clear in the book, we can't just be talking about individuals. We can't just be talking about individual um, achievements, individual successes, individual definitions of feminism. We have to be talking about it as a movement. Mm-hmm. And so when we bring Uh, feminism into contact with this very rarefied celebrity world that is all about individuals and is all about images, Um, you know, we risk taking feminism out of the realm of a social project and making it simply an identity um, that confers like a certain kind of coolness Mm -hmm. or a certain kind of, um, you know, status on someone. That's, That's very different than feminism as kind of an ongoing, evolving movement that serves everyone. Yeah, and I I also think it's so interesting to think about the type of feminist identity this identity-based feminism has promoted. Specifically, it seems like we've been so concerned about that angry feminist stereotype and have so much pushed for celebrities to make it this sort of glamorous, palatable, and therefore sellable thing that we've pivoted to this sort of manic girl power model of quote-unquote empowerment, which you discuss in the book. Um, so so yeah. I'm just wondering, what do you think denying and trying to erase anger and, and, the, and the motivations behind that stereotype from this movement has done to women and to feminists, especially women who have experienced injustice? The whole point of making something a brand is to make it as broad and as palatable to the greatest number of people uh, with the smallest amount of effort as possible. And so what that means in the context of feminism is really stripping out um, all of the things that aren't convenient, all of the anger, uh, all of the sort of unfinishedness of feminism as a scope, all of the possible ways that it's going to hurt people's feelings. So when we when we say like, oh, well, feminism should be a brand that's going to make it popular, that's going to make it more accessible to everyone, um, I think we have to ask, well, will it? If that also means taking very serious discussions of power and power dynamics and injustice, out of the question. Yeah, and, and I feel like the only celebrities or sort of people in the public eye that you could consider sort of these branded feminists who have sort of, at least in my opinion, tried to marry these two things are often really young women. Um, I think we've seen a lot of headlines over the past couple years about women like Amanda Stenberg and Rowan Blanchard who are teenagers, they're, they're actresses and performers, but they're also claiming the feminist identity on platforms like Tumblr, but they're talking about things like cultural appropriation and white feminism and sort of trying to dig a little deeper. Um, so I'm just wondering, what do you what do you make of the way this iteration of feminism has raised consciousness, especially among young women? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a really great question. And I think so far, you know, they are the, you know, they, they definitely are the people who um, 
I think are, you know, pushing conversations further. Um, and it's maybe because they're operating in a somewhat more malleable, more democratic time media-wise. You know, I, I think people like uh, Amanda Stenberg and Rowan Blanchard are kind of coming to feminism in real time and are able to kind of talk about feminism as an intersectional, evolving thing in the language of a lot of the people that are sort of going along with them, that are they're all sort of like learning at the same time. And I think there's a lot to be said for that and for feeling like your politics don't have to be static and don't have to be perfect. I think where celebrity feminism has gotten bogged down in the past is people feeling like they can't say anything until they can say the perfect thing. Mm. They have a more nuanced and more complex and less static megaphone than a lot of sort of so-called feminist celebrities or, or would-be feminist celebrities who came before them. And I think that uh, that can that can be a really positive thing. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, there are no easy answers to this, and, and you say as much in the book, uh, but how do you think we can at least begin to approach moving away from this superficial iteration to a more systemic one? Is it on platforms like social media and with younger younger people? I agree there's no easy answers, but I do think, and um, this is certainly something that, that Bitch has always promoted and has always been, I think, a, a feature of sort of like feminism that, that really takes pop culture and media as its locus. Um, just the idea of, of critical thinking mm. and of not taking things as they are served to us and of not being um, passive consumers. You know, reminding ourselves that there is so much media around us, it is in most of that media's best interest for us to not look too closely at it or its messages. I think really promoting the idea of critical thinking and really the idea that it's important to pay attention to the media and pop culture you love if you want it to be better and you want it to more actively and uh, truthfully reflect the world around you. So, yeah, I mean, I think just asking questions. In the case of, you know, things like marketplace feminism, I think it's important to, you know, point out that there is a difference between a multinational corporation like Unilever urging women to love themselves with Dove products while also, um, you know, sort of subtly pushing a a really classic party line about bodily insecurity and and beauty standards. There's a difference between that and between, you know, a viral video made by a group of young feminists that are also about beauty standards and that might seem to share some of the same language but which one is trying to sell you a product that you don't need and which one is doing it to, you know, promote just awareness or or laughter or critical thinking. Um, So I think the more media this world gets, the more we're encouraged to sort of not differentiate between the two of them and think of both of them as these kind of neutral products. There's that company, do you know that company HelloFlow that does like the, yeah, the menstrual product box? I think their sort of viral marketing plays with what we have come to understand about marketing, you know, menstrual products to women and girls and the sort of mixed messages around shame versus, you know, this kind of quote-unquote empowerment. So, yeah, I definitely think there are examples of, of companies and of, and of individuals who are 
exploring exploring those things and doing it very cleverly and doing it well. And hopefully there will be many more in the future. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I am not, like, I am so confident about that. I mean, I, I think that people are, I think that, you know, increasingly, you know, we are, there are so many great critical thinkers. There are so many people who are, who are really paying attention that I am very, very confident that we're going we're gonna to see much more in that, in that vein for sure. That was MTV Deputy Founders Editor Julie Zeilinger in conversation with author Andy Zeisler about her new book, We Were Feminists Once. Black Youth Project 100 is an activist organization, mostly comprised of black millennials. They recently released an agenda to build black futures, which addresses economic justice and racial equality. Senior National Correspondent Jamil Smith spoke with the director of the Black Youth Project, Charlene Carruthers, about her work, the importance of intersectionality, and the connection between health and activism. Charlene, can you tell me a little bit about how Black Youth Project 100 got started? BYP 100 wasn't planned. In 2013, uh, Dr. Kathy Cohen of the University of Chicago led a convening alongside other young activists here in Chicago and folks from around the country um, in which 100 young black activists were invited to attend. And the intention was, again, to talk about um, movement work from different sectors. There are folks from labor, folks from um, artist communities, uh, issue-based organizers, um, elected officials, all kinds of folks in the room. And then that Saturday evening, uh, we were gathered. We were actually about to dismiss for the day. And uh, someone announced that the George Zimmerman verdict was um, to be aired you know, momentarily. And so we then all gathered together in the large meeting room and stood in a circle and braced ourselves for what the decision was to be. And it was out of that moment of both collective trauma and clarity that we made a decision to build a political organization that was base building in nature and operating through a lens that has evolved into being called a black queer feminist lens. Can you go a little bit more into that, Um, just as far as what a black queer feminist lens is? So for us, uh, we we are students of history, all of us. We we talk about the Black Panther Party. We talk about SNCC, uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Uh, We talk about uh, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, Ella Baker, all these folks. And want some of the gaps that existed in that work are around visibility and um, power of black women, black LGBTQ folks, um, black folks who didn't look in like everyone else or like respectable folks mm-hmm. or have the college education, things like that. And so we want to create an organization that is reflective of, of who we are as a people. Um, the experiences that people come from, and that requires us to like have a very strong stance around um, feminism and um, queer liberation. What it means is that for 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 this work is that none of us are free until all of us are free, and that we have to like organize from the margins into the center if we're going to be holistic in our solutions. So on that note, I want to ask you about this uh, recent New York Times survey. It came out um, on May 6th. And basically, it just you know, illustrates, you know, on that note, all the divisions between the different identities uh, that, uh, in Chicago, uh, specifically how different 
identities, people from different sides of town, people of different ethnicities, see the problems that Chicago is facing. I think folks are unhappy with how things are going, but they see different realities. You know, they see mm-hmm. thing, different things going on. Are Chicago's divisions, you feel, on a racial and every other line, the source of its problems? I think that uh, there there are lots of divisions and contentions um, in Chicago. Um, the, the conflict that you see bubbling up now, they are long-held and, like, steep in um, deep historical experiences and, and current choices to not change the status quo. I think that it is... Uh, it is a very complicated situation mm-hmm. um, here in here in Chicago, uh, but this work is complicated, and this movement, like our lives, are complicated. And um, I think there's a spirit in Chicago that is also um, has also been seen historically a spirit of folks who resist and believe that something can be different and better for folks. What do you feel like BYP 100's role is in making that change happen? We are a an organization of young black people, which includes like folks who are directly impacted by the exact issues that we are working to change um, and to transform in this city. And so our role is one of uh, forwarding a narrative, a different narrative about what's happening and what needs to change. Um, our role is also in uh, developing young black people as leaders. Um, as strong leaders and strong organizers, and to like our presence is agitational for many people, not just Mayor Rahm Emanuel. It's also agitational for, you know, the progressive establishment. Um, it's agitational for the civil rights establishment. Um, it's even agitational for you know the left, um, the leftist uh, sector here in Chicago, uh, and I think that's good. I'm intrigued. Uh, by some of the things you've been posting on Twitter lately. And uh, one of them um, is the fact that, you know, you were forced, you say forced to be a vegan or vegetarian. Uh, and then you've discovered <laughs> how that diet has uh, has helped you make you feel better. I'm curious to know how you, you know, feel that that transition is going. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> uh, this, this, I, I really appreciate this question. Uh, because food is becoming something that it, it has always been something that is important to me, and it is becoming increasingly political for me, um, like in this time. And what we put in our bodies, uh, I believe, like that is connected to our culture and who we are. And so I'm not anti-meat. I don't think everyone should stop eating meat, and I don't think eating meat is immoral. Like I don't want to. <laughs> say that that's where I'm coming from. Where I'm coming from is that I changed my diet because what I was eating was impacting how I felt physically. Mm-hmm. And our communities have been like currently systemically like blocked from eat, like having access to, to the food that actually is good for us. Um, too many of us live in food deserts. I have one major grocery store currently in my neighborhood and they're building one now after years, decades of not having one. And so food is political. Um, food justice work is real. And there are lots of people who've been doing that work for some time. And so I feel like I'm entering that part of my, my political journey um, in connecting food. Um, and I'm starting that with myself. So I cook and I feed people, feed my friends um, and family. Uh, that That's like one of the, the big things I do for, for self-care. 
All right. Which well, is really community care because it's not just me. <laughs> well, I guess then the best way to close would be to say, take care of yourself while you're taking care of Chicago. All right. Yes. Thank you so much. That was MTV senior national correspondent Jamil Smith, along with Charlene Carruthers of Black Youth Project 100. You're listening to The Stakes. We'll be right back. As our deputy political editor, Julianne Ross has a lot of responsibilities, so it's inevitable that she'll miss a story or two. That's where Jamie Fuller comes to the rescue. She's here to make sure Julie and all of us stay up to date on the best of the rest, the kind of electoral news we want to hear more about. This week, California's crazy Senate race. So, Jamie, what else do I need to know that's going on in the world of politics right now? So you probably already know that uh, the the last big primary day is on June 7th, which is when California votes. Mm -hmm. And the presidential race isn't terribly interesting because we basically know what's going to happen in the Democratic race and Mm -hmm. the Republican race is over. But there's a Senate race that's really interesting First of all, because there hasn't been a Senate seat open in California since 1992. But the, the more funny thing about it is that there are 34 candidates running. 34 candidates. What's like the average number of candidates that run? <laughs> I have no idea, but... But it's not 34. It's, it's not 34. It's usually more manageable than that. You, just, you yeah. look at the Republican race this year, the presidential one, and that was in the 20s. And people are like, what? That's crazy. Yeah. So, like you, all of them lined up on stage. It seemed huge. 34. Geez. Okay. So do, do like, what do we know about these people? Well, the only two people that are probably uh, going to be important to remember are the two Democrats, uh, Kamala Harris, the attorney general and representative Loretta Sanchez, because California has a weird system where they put everyone on the ballot in a big blob, regardless of what your party is. And the top two people who win go on and fight each other in the general. So they're all just like mixed together on the ballot? Yep. And because California is such a democratic state and because there probably aren't going to be that many Republicans voting because the Republican presidential race is boring. So it doesn't seem likely that there will be any Republicans on the ballot come November. Is this the biggest ballot that there's been? Like... Have there been bigger ballots than this? No, 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 no. For the most monstrous ballot in California history, there's uh, the 2003 gubernatorial recall, which people only remember because Arnold Schwarzenegger won it. But he was running against 134 people. So it's. Oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, and then back to this election, besides the two people who are going to end up winning. There's a startup CEO, an environmental healing consultant. What is that? <laughs> I don't know what that word what those words mean together. I don't I don't know either, but judging from her um, platform, which is completely based around marijuana, I think we can figure it out. Okay. Yeah, now it makes sense. <laughs> There's one person who advertises that he's a stay at home dad. There's a woodworker. Okay. There's one guy who, another very techy California thing, his shtick is that he wants to be the nation's first e-voting candidate. What does that mean? It means that it's basically he wants to institute an American Idol 
uh, style of governance where he'll put an issue on the table and his constituents can vote online and then he'll vote however they want. That sounds like simultaneously awful and amazing. <laughs> <laughs> like, sadly, I don't think the sky is going to be the one to test try it. But I don't know, maybe Donald Trump, Donald yeah. Trump will be, be, be our first go. Uh, there's another guy who's really upset about climate change. Uh, as, who, as he should be. As he should be. But his um, website says, please vote for me if for no other reason than at least so we don't all die, which I bet would look good on a hat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, he's just keeping it real because that is <laughs> that is the truth. All of all of these little political battles don't matter in the face of climate change. This this is true. And he, he conjures a pretty terrifying image of what could happen to all of us and that he says he wants to prevent Earth from turning into a low-budget remake of Waterworld or The Postman, which I don't know <laughs> how, like, low-budget's pretty pretty real. Like, I can't imagine how you can make those movies worse, but he he's found a way to make it even more terrifying. Yeah, and a big but, Kevin Costner fan. And, and a big Kevin Costner fan. Cool. Well, yeah, the presidential race seems a little bit more tame now. Kind of, a little bit. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, counterpoint, we're, we're never going to remember these people after June 7th, but the presidential race was sticking with us for a couple more months. Yeah, this is true. We're not out of the woods yet. So nope. much more time. How many more days do you have like a running clock? 172. 172. Okay. Yeah, we can do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for keeping me informed. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. Sorry that we ended on such a depressing note, but we'll fix it next time. One day at a time. That was MTV political writer Jamie Fuller and deputy political editor Julianne Ross. We're going to close things out this week with another offering from our very own poet-in-residence, MTV political writer Marcus Ellsworth. This week, he implores us to take care of the Gulf of Mexico before it's too late. Come see the gorgeous Gulf of Mexico. This is a limited time offer lasting only a lifetime or so. That last oil spill we had, well, it's getting cleaned up fast. Only 90,000 gallons and they say the effects won't last. Most of it's being skimmed away like grease from a toxic gumbo. Won't even reach the shore, they say. Isn't that better than the last time? When fisheries were closed, beaches banned swimming, and the people got hosed by chemical rains coating the land, they got to see dolphins dying blistered on black sands. Fishers trying to sell food they wouldn't feed to their kin, or markets wouldn't buy so they scrape sores from fish skin, hoping the meat's not black as the water, praying as they say grace that it doesn't poison their daughter. But... None of that this time. We caught it pretty quick. Why, it's hardly even a crime. No explosions, only an oil slick. This time. But what about the next? Or the one after that? Oil dependency's cost is anyone's guess. As we tally projections of what we deem acceptable loss for our environmental future, big oil is still the boss. Tell your grandkids about Waters Blue. Their eyes will light up when you swear that it's true. There was once life in the dying sea, where we drill, knowing what's at stake, spiking the earth for oil addiction, not caring when the needles break. See the Gulf Coast while it lasts, where people live, work, and play, and don't even need gas masks. This time, 
for a limited time. Accidents happen, am I right? Let's help the gulf go quietly into that inky black good night. Or you could try to fight back. Biodiesel and green energy plans could give us some slack on the rope around the planet's neck, but that takes effort and who needs that? Just some fish and people. Our collective future, perhaps. Maybe if you see the gulf now, we can turn the tide of oil back. That's it for us this week on The Stakes. We'll be back next week with more. I'm Holly Anderson. Thanks for listening. This episode of The Stakes was produced by Michael Catano and Mukta Mohan for the MTV Podcast Network. You can follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at MTV News and MTV Podcasts. Subscribe to this and other MTV podcasts on iTunes.